0: I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour. we smart. Is sexy. This has been our weekly All Women of Color Media Panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and London. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. week on The Spin, Reimagining Resistance, Sisterhood and Solidarity. Today, in part one, we talk transgender women, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Jermaine Greer, public icons, comments and consequences. And in part two, Sisterhood and Solidarity, building it, breaking it, hard conversations, healing futures, doing the emotional labor, all of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Elle Hearns and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. Elle Hearns is the executive director of the Marsha P. Johnston Institute and the former organizing director for the Black Lives Matter Network. She's a black transgender woman, revolutionary, an organizer and a writer. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is a scholar, writer and public intellectual. Dr. Lindsay is an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University and the inaugural Equity for Women and Girls of Color Fellow at Harvard University. Her new book is called Colored No More Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C., and you can pre order it on Amazon.com. Welcome, welcome, ladies.
1: Thank you. So happy to be here. Thank you for
2: having me. Hello, everyone.
0: Let's start with our first conversation. Nigerian author, feminist, and new mother Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie gave an interview on London's Channel 4 News during which she spoke about transgender women. Here's what she said.
3: So when people talk about, you know, are trans women women, my feeling is trans women are trans women. And I think if you've been, if you've lived in the world as a man, with the privileges that the world accords to men, and then um, sort of change, switch gender, It's difficult for me to accept that then we can equate your experience with the experience of a woman who has lived from the beginning in the world as a woman and who has not been accorded those privileges that that men are. I don't think it's a good thing to conflate everything into one. I don't think it's a good thing to talk about women's issues being exactly the same as the issues of trans women. What I'm saying is that gender is not biology. Gender sociology.
0: Her comments provoked outrage, critique, and accusations of transphobia. The backlash was swift, and so was the support. Some said her comments were hurtful, they were transphobic, and that as a straight black woman, this was not her issue to discuss. But the support was strong too. Others agreed with Chimamanda. They argued that acknowledging difference did not negate support across social media there were comments and arguments about who transgender women were and who they were not the fallout continued high-profile transgender actress and activist laverne cox weighed in with her personal experience and perspective think pieces were written in which chimamanda was critiqued on the one hand and some praised on the other Chimamanda herself responded to the critique with a lengthy Facebook comment in which part of which she said, I quote, I think the impulse to say trans women are women, just like women born female are women, comes from a need to make trans women's issues mainstream. Because by making them mainstream, we might reduce the many oppressions they experience. But it feels disingenuous to me. The intent is a good one, but the strategy feels untrue, unquote. Chimamanda Adichie is a Nigerian author. She has published several successful books, Purple Hibiscus, Half of a Yellow Sun, Americana, which is being turned into a film by Hollywood production company Plan B, and whose rights were snapped up by Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o. Chimamanda's latest book is called Dear Ijewili or and feminist manifesto in 15 suggestions. Chimamanda is a storyteller, a writer, and a public feminist icon who now has global reach. Now, millions first met Chimamanda through her TED talk, The Danger of a Single Story, and that explored the one-dimensional portrayal of Africa and the harm that caused. In it, she said...
3: I realised that people like me, girls with skin the colour of chocolate, whose kinky hair could not form ponytails, could also exist in literature. I started to write about things I recognized. Now, I loved those American and British books I read. They stirred my imagination. They opened up new worlds for me. But the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this. It saved me from having a single story of what books are. Years later, I thought about this when I left Nigeria to go to university in the United States. I was 19. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way, no possibility of feelings more complex than pity. no possibility of a connection as human equals. I must say that before I went to the U.S., I didn't consciously identify as African. But in the U.S., whenever Africa came up, people turned to me, never mind that I knew nothing about places like Namibia. But I did come to embrace this new identity, and in many ways, I think of myself now as African. After I had spent some years in the U.S. as an African, I began to understand my roommate's response to me. If I had not grown up in Nigeria, and if all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals, and incomprehensible people fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves, and waiting to be saved by a kind, white foreigner. So that is how to create a single story. Show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. It is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There is a word, an Igbo word, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is Nkali. It's a noun that loosely translates to, to be greater than another. Like our economic and political worlds, stories too are defined by the principle of Nkali. How they are told, who tells them when they are told, how many stories are told, are really dependent on power.
0: The millions of other young women that came to know her name through a quote from a TED talk on feminism in Flawless, the track by Beyonce. Listen.
3: We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I am expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. Now marriage can be a source of joy and love and mutual support, but why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. Sex, 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 you sex. wake up.
4: Darling,
0: Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie wrote a piece in The Guardian in which she publicly stated she had nothing to apologize for. In the piece that quoted Shimamanda from an event where she was a speaker of politics and prose, a bookstore in Washington, D.C., she was quoted as saying, It's important for us to acknowledge the differences in experience of gender. That's really what my point is, unquote. She also condemned what she called a, quote, language orthodoxy, unquote. From a Nigerian author, storyteller, and feminist to a white Australian feminist icon, Germaine Greer, and her comments on transgender women. Germaine Greer is a white feminist icon from the 1970s, and she's the author of the international bestseller, The Female Eunuch. Greer has faced public critique, censure and the cancelling of public speeches due to her comments on transgender women, specifically Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn was formerly Bruce Jenner, an Olympic athlete, father of two, married to Kris Jenner and a TV reality public figure due to the global series Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Jermaine Greer was asked a question about transgender women on an Australian show Q&A by journalist Steph D'Souza. Here's what happened.
3: My question's for Jermaine Greer. Uh, when I was younger, I found your work a great source of strength and inspiration. It helped me resist the limitations that society or even misogynists could place on me. But I find really confusing views that you've expressed—that transgender women are not real women. Why do you believe there is such a thing as a real woman, a real woman rather? Isn't that the kind of essentialism that you and I are trying to resist and escape? Jermaine.
4: Oh, this is so difficult. You know, I agree that uh, when I first was thinking about what is a woman, I fell for the usual view that women were people with with two X's and men were people with an X and a Y, which made life nice and easy for me. Uh, And I now realise, partly because I'm not entirely um, immune to information, that this was wrong that in fact, there are all kinds of intersexual conditions and there's various ways in which genes are expressed in behavior and development. Um, And then in fact, having two sexes is uh, is essentialist, you might say, but it's not even that, it's just wrong. But the interesting thing to me is this, that if you decide because you're uncomfortable in the masculine system, uh, which turns boys into men, often at great cost to themselves, uh, if you're unhappy with that, it doesn't mean that you belong at the other end of the spectrum. That by expressing it that way... What if you know that you've been born with the wrong sex? You can't know that. Well, How can you say that? Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that does seem to be acutely... Because you don't know what the other sex is. But to a transgender person, they know that. They feel that. Within their own identity. Oh, it's not something a, that I know or you know that oh, will feel, obviously, but... Look, we've got a problem now with the word no And we could spend a lot of time discussing what that means philosophically. Is belief the, believe the same as know? Um Is true belief the same as knowing? Um, it, none of this is easy. Uh, the difficulty for me is this that women are constantly being told that they are not satisfactory as women. And that other people make better women than they do. uh, And that the woman of the year may be Caitlyn Jenner, which makes the rest of the female population of the world feel slightly wry. Um, I don't believe that a man who has lived for forty years as a man and had children with a woman and enjoyed the services, the unpaid services of a wife which most women never will never know that he then decides that the whole time he's been a woman. And at that point, I'd like to say, well, hang on a minute. You you believed you were a woman, but you married another woman. That wasn't fair, was it?
0: Her comments also provoked public outcry, a petition to remove her as a forthcoming speaker at a university campus and a series of think pieces exploring the treatment of someone defined as a feminist icon who had fallen foul of the transgender community and was being accused of failing in support of a sisterhood. Greer stood by her comments. Chimamanda Adichie clarified hers, but also stood by her argument. So let's talk public icons, public comments, public fallout, lessons, and learning. El Hearns, let me start with you. Your thoughts.
2: I'm very thankful for all of the context, and hopefully the listeners are more aware of the in-depth coverage that these comments have been receiving in and- media and also in the public discourse amongst the public. Me, personally, I have been monitoring and observing and really listening to see if the conversation was going to be lifted higher, and to be very frank, I do not agree with the views that were shared by Chimamanda. I don't know who's actually in her circle or who she's in community with, but I trust that if she was in community deeply with people who are on the margins and not just those who applaud her, her sentiments would be very different. I do appreciate the honesty in which she shared exactly where she was. I think there's always this trouble that people have with being honest about what they're struggling with. So, you know, I wouldn't say that I appreciate her remarks, but I appreciate the place that she's in. I do think that the critiques that she's received and also her unwillingness to to name that she actually might not be the person who should be leading the conversation or even acts, you know, I think she does have everything to apologize for in that right, but it has been particularly interesting to see how she's either been applauded or discarded. And so it's this dynamic that's very similar She's being discarded in the very ways that she's discarding the experiences of trans women. You know, across the globe, trans women are not only being discarded in intellectual theory, but they're actually... We are actually being discarded from life. And I think that's really important to take into context when we're talking about gender and the differences across. The reality of gender is that you actually have to talk about the ways in which it is a necessary step of action to dismantle gender because all of us are performing these ahistorical ideas that just don't represent who we are and actually the political times. So I think it is her responsibility and the responsibility of people like her to actually elevate the conversation beyond these kind of archaic views about gender, but also who gender lies with and who has access or who determines who has access to
1: gender representation, not only in this country, but globally.
0: Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay, your thoughts?
1: I've been struck by how many conversations I've been in about this since the interview first started really circulating in the social media universe. And something that I felt very strongly in this moment is, particularly as a woman who needed to listen. And what we saw here was not a critical practice of listening that was happening I think, with Chimamanda, of hearing not only beyond the single story, which was so fascinating that she seemed to kind of invoke a single story to explain trans women's experiences, which was extremely dangerous in this case, particularly when talking about privilege and access and livelihood, all of these things, that she really conflated that down almost to a monolith. And that was deeply problematic for me in terms of someone who has given us language to think beyond a single story, even though that was in the context of Africa, but thinking about that in the context of feminism, that women as a category, as a broad and fluid and expansive, and hopefully, as I imagine it, in a politically, humanity-wise, inclusive category, that there would be a single story. And so what she was arguing for and what I saw people who were supporting her statements, which again I felt was very misogynistic, quite violent and trans antagonistic, which is why I was loath to even retweet the interview or retweet some of the things I was saying, but wanted to have these conversations in a way that we can acknowledge where we are in thinking about gender and gender identity and gender representation, but to also not cause harm as we're doing that. I think that's the balance we need to strike and her doubling down with her Facebook post, the thing I have nothing to apologize for, is that she's in this space of not hearing, not listening. So not only is it who's in her circle who's not encouraging her to maybe sit back and hear some of these critiques, hear how her comments read as harmful and are harmful and are part of a larger body of rhetoric that impacts the lives of those on the margins of the margins. But also that she identified herself as an ally, which to me is something you just don't get to do. How are you an ally? And people within that community are telling you, hey, sis, you're doing some harm. Hey, Sib, we think you're not actually seeing this and seeing our humanity in its fullness. And that, to me, was what was also so deeply problematic. Not that she is where she is, as Elle Echo in her comments about acknowledging where we are and how we're thinking about gender and how we're living gender, how we're experiencing gender, but that once pushed, once asked, once put in this spotlight, that your immediate response was to double down. And to consider yourself and declare yourself an ally to a community that's saying, hey, we need you to listen for a second. We need you to listen and learn. And more importantly in this moment, unlearn. And a lot of this for us is going to be an unlearning process. And I'm curious about the ways we can do that ethically and without causing farther harm to our trans sisters as we unlearn what we've learned about gender itself.
0: What was powerful for me was my own journey in first hearing her comments and thinking when she when I listened to what she said I thought I don't understand what is transphobic about what she said that was my initial response and then I saw people who are in my own community and who I respect and love stating that it was that the comments were both transphobic and harmful and I remember reading that and thinking break down for me in what way that is harmful explain to me how this is transphobic and I thought about the thousands of people who may have stood in the same place. And I thought about the way in which the fallout, the discarding of Chimamando made the listening harder. And then I just continued to follow and listen. I mean, really, exactly what you said, Trevor, was to just read and listen and go through. And it's actually when I went back, as I was thinking about putting together a show to discuss this very issue and i had been asked to do a few shows about this and I was unwilling to do a show like this I said well first of all I have not reached out to any transgender women and I don't know how you have a conversation about transgender women without transgender women isn't that the issue in the first place we talk about an inclusiveness and then practice an exclusion and wonder why that is problematic. As I continue to listen, I then listen to what Laverne Cox said and her personal experience. And at that point I thought, can Laverne Cox's personal experience be as true as Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's argument. And so that's where I was. And then I continued to listen and pay attention to the different think pieces on what people were saying and those who avidly supported what she said and discarded the critique and the other way around. And what was interesting for me is that actually when I went back and listened to The Danger of a Single Story, Chimamanda's TED Talk, is where I began to emotionally understand the harm. And I thought it's interesting because in the tech talk, Chimamanda is asking and inviting the world to recognize the harm that is caused when only one version of an issue is articulated again and again and again and again and again and not just that one version is articulated, but there is a power to the articulation of that particular thing. And I thought, wow, you are doing with transgender women what you have asked the world not to do about Africa. So I wondered if anybody had thought, I want, I want to use your own words to apply to what you said in order for you to maybe begin to see why what you said is problematic. Because in the TED Talk, Chimamanda spoke about the power of the telling of a particular story and that whoever has the power and privilege in a moment can carve a direction that is harmful in ways that they are unaware of. And I just thought, wow, but that's exactly what you're doing with this transgender women issue. And then you're doing what we who engage and critique about Africa do with those who do that exact thing. They double down on their wrongness and then in the next sentence claim allyship. And so I thought about our blind spots and the challenge of doing the difficult emotional labor of having made a public statement. And articulated a public argument that you believe to be true, being corrected in ways that you don't understand or recognize, not having, well, I don't know who is in her circle, but clearly they're not appearing to be someone offering an argument that she's paying attention to, declaring yourself an ally, doing all these things that in a previous talk you critiqued others for doing. And then I thought about how when it comes to these public conversations, how do we negotiate and have tough conversations about being wrong and correcting your path? As you said, Elle, recognizing the honesty of something, but also then having to walk from that wrong honesty. You are honestly wrong and moving from that place to what it means to actually be supportive in that moment. And so I wondered, El, if you could talk about that, the, the privilege of who gets to tell the story about transgender and why Chimamanda and her privilege and her power matter and make it kind of doubly wrong in that particular space.
2: It's just so fascinating to me that movements exist and people continue to ignore them. As an organizer, part of my work is directly interrupting systems that support these types of comments. And also the, the doubling down that people or institutions or governments or whatever the case you, you may call it, that doubling down to protect one's ability to be wrong. And so I think that, you know, her comments, her, her doubling down, her, her honesty really, it's been a great, a great place for me to examine because I don't live in a hopeful place. It is not my job to be hopeful. It is my job to live. And so I don't believe in giving too much space to those who show up as oppressors. My resistance is to deny any type of solidarity to those who don't consider me. And so I am really just in this interesting place around this whole frenzy around Chimamanda and just, Examining how she has attempted to, or at least how people who support her have attempted to portray her as the victim when she's actually the person who was shooting the gun. And so it's the same for me in conversations around the police murdering people or people being discarded due to gentrification. Like, it is the same discardment that continues to happen by those who are in power and those who have access not only to language but access to actually even examine the language that they are using and so for me I think a lot of Chimamanda's comments and the ways that she moves in the world are directly in relationship to white feminism and that's also something that I reject I don't claim feminism, I claim blackness, but I don't see anything else. And I think my critique, really, or even my thoughts are just what was the goal for Chimamanda as someone who claims to be in solidarity or claims allyship? What was her goal and what did she achieve? What were the results of her comments? And so... As someone who is a great scholar and who was afforded the opportunity in ways that other trans women would, or I'm sorry, let me be clear, that other women, particularly trans women, would never ever have this type of a platform to speak about their experiences, there is a piece for me around what is equitable and less of this idea or narrative around inclusion because trans women are not looking to be included in womanhood, or at least not me at least not the communities that I come from, because there's an understanding of what womanhood means, and there's also an understanding of what gender means beyond what people have been taught in academia. And so I really think that at this point it's really important to examine who we are idolizing and how we are not actually moving in a way that dismantles any of the things that are influencing the world, partly the things that are of a white supremacist system. So, you know, that's the framework in which I operate in, and and that's the the framework for which my idols and the people that I look up to and people whose thoughts I respect, particularly black trans women, from Miss Major to Raquel Willis, who offer great commentary, educating the public about this particular Moment, and then also those who are great resistors, Aaron Lane. These are the people that I look to, and so you know, I think for Chima Monda, as someone who Hollywood loves, it's really important to examine and reflect on what it is that she's actually chasing, as opposed to what she's creating. And one of the things that she's not creating is a space for humanity to be recognized. And so her work, her words, has become a contradiction. And I think she really, really should think about that on a global front. Like I said, Black trans women, women of color, of trans experience, are being murdered at rates higher than ever reported. And so I don't necessarily know how much she's actually grounded in the experiences of womanhood herself to actually even be commenting, because if she was, she would know that women are under attack. And there's just no reason to continue to go on protecting herself because that is a way that capitalism shows up and continues to manifest in discarding communities of people who will never have
1: the opportunities that she does.
0: Dr. to truth Lindsay.
1: I'm thinking here about what this conversation sparked and even some of your own thought process Esther, around this and that one of the things I felt most compelled to do in that moment as I saw a lot of non-trans black women processing this in ways that I felt were necessary, but also did harm. And so I know my colleague and friend, Brittany Cooper, did something similar and asked people to inbox us, right? That I was providing resources, elevating the voices of trans women like Raquel Willis, like the work of Erin Lang, like so many people that I think are spot on who center their own stories in doing this, but also saying, as trans women are trying to survive right now, when I hear statistics like the average lifespan for a Black trans woman is 35 years old, and Trippamanda should know that if she doesn't know that in terms of how we're framing the experience of womanhood in this world, that knowing something like that, the last thing I want to have to ask my trans kids to do is explain their humanity to anybody. And do that kind of work. And so part of what it is is for us as non-trans women to, one, center these stories as we're attempting to do by elevating these voices, providing space when we, as cis Black women, non-trans Black women, have the little space that we do have as well. So I want to be clear here that privilege in this context is very much so about how we talk about this and the kind of even hierarchy of privilege in this context. But using that to open up space and to be able to intervene and have these conversations and truly be co-conspirators in this. So that was a lot of inboxes after this happened of like, let's have this conversation. Let me help you unpack what this means. Let's think about this from an equity and justice standpoint. Let's think about this from the experiences of multiple women. Let's think beyond the single stories. Yes, this public moment means a lot because she has a platform and all of this. But what became clear from that is that she was not alone in that thinking in that positioning. And that to me was extraordinarily revelatory as someone who's in these spaces where some of these things are a given. And then it's like, wait, it actually wasn't a given. We all weren't operating from the same position. So let us take a step back and think about, are we truly doing justice work when we're not centering, when we're not thinking about and actively engaging the project of survival, living and thriving for every single one of us. And for me, that comes through, understanding these experiences at multiple levels and someone who's claiming the mantle of feminism of black womanhood and these different spaces that Chimamanda herself has occupied and talked about. I think it's super important to think about difference within that community, but also thinking about what womanhood looks like, the experience of womanhood looks like, what gender violence looks like. And if we're thinking about that, with trans women in the conversation, your ideas actually don't shift that significantly about women. It actually intensifies and emboldens this argument that we're under attack. So when I think about a black woman being killed every 19 hours, what would that mean if that statistic actually was encompassing the violence we've seen against trans women, particularly trans women of color? That statistic obviously would go down. I shudder to think of what that might look like. In my own research I've come up with, it go down to about one every 17 hours, right? And what does it mean to sit with that and think about the ways that those on the margins are at such risk and that those with platforms are ignoring the ways in which that risk shows up? And so it's a danger and an opportunity for growth that exposes where we all are collectively because the conversations that happened after this, because it was so public, really inspired me to say we have a lot more work to do and it's work I thought that we had sort of begun to do but clearly had not because we're still actually debating people's humanity and for me, people's black humanity within this space which is fundamentally unacceptable.
0: I'm reminded specifically about my own work, Emotional Justice, where I say that You know, one of the biggest mistakes we make in terms of our movement work is to imagine that a progressive politics is the same as a progressive emotionality. And we should, of course, be reminded that our public icons, we treat them as if they're too often flawless. And truly, we are remembering that their humanity is deeply flawed, like all of ours is and requires a particular kind of work, a particular kind of emotional labor. Public icons, flawed. Definitely not flawless.
3: You wake up, post up, round round it, blossom on it. The diamond, my diamond, this, the rock, my rock. I woke up
0: like this. I woke up like this. we flawless, ladies. Tell them I woke up like this. I woke up like this. we flawless, ladies. Tell them. That was part one of our ongoing discussion: Reimagining Resistance, Sisterhood, and Solidarity. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are L. Hearns and Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay. This spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio north carolina new jersey mississippi texas south carolina new york massachusetts georgia and iowa we are on air in ghana on star fm 103.5 and we're on air in london on abn uk radio and we're online subscribe to the spin one podcast on soundcloud and itunes
1: My diamond, Love there's a rock. Love My rock. Love I woke up like
0: this. I woke up like this. we flawless. Ladies, tell them I woke up like this. Everybody gets it wrong. And everybody has got to learn sometime. And everybody's got to learn
3: sometime. Everybody's got to learn sometime.
0: Everybody's gotta learn sometime. Mm-hmm. Change your heart Look around you
4: Change your heart
0: You. This is The Spin. Every week, one hour, one mic, three women of colour, and we go global. Everybody's got to learn something. Too. Everybody's got to
4: learn something. Too. Everybody's got to learn something.
0: Time for part two of Reimagining Resistance, Solidarity and Sisterhood. So there's a larger conversation about sisterhood and solidarity post this public fallout and from the public comments by public icons and their reactions to those comments. So let's crunch some numbers. Transgender black women and women of color live in poverty and face increased risk of violence and death. According to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, 34% of black trans women live in extreme poverty. According to the National Coalition of Anti-Violence, 72% of hate crime homicides committed against LGBTQ people in 2013 were against trans women and 90% of those crimes were against trans women of color. In 2015, the first National Day of Action in support of transgender women of colour took place, and the second took place this year in March, and both were the vision of organiser Elle Hearns. Now, these National Days of Action raise the names of transgender women who have lost their lives to violence, but they also invite us to recognise the threats that they face, their presence within our movement spaces. This National Day of Action in support of transgender women of colour and black transgender women also made me think about, say, her name's national action. Of course, the 21st of March was the anniversary of the death of Rakia Boyd, a young black woman shot by an off-duty police officer. These were the kind of events that were about lifting the names of black girls and women whose lives and names are too easily forgotten in movements where the killing of black boys and men are privileged. Again, this speaks to larger conversations about solidarity and sisterhood. How do we build a stronger and more loving sisterhood that is both accountable and forgiving and learning and changing? What is the emotional labor that needs to be done in order to make this real? On February 2nd, 2016's Huffington Post, L. Hearns and Dr. Tritha B. Lindsay published a conversation on this exact issue. And in one part, Dr. Lindsay asks, quote, What does solidarity mean? I'm wary of its meaning in our current movement, unquote. And El Hearns responds, and I quote, It is the responsibility of people who want to be in solidarity with black women and black femmes to be self-reflective. Solidarity is often dictated and controlled by people with power and privilege. We have to make space for folks to challenge themselves to practice solidarity, unquote. So let's talk sisterhood, solidarity, emotional labor, and building stronger bonds. Dr. Triva B. Lindsay, let me start with you. Your thoughts. I
1: think for me, this moment really made me go back to some of these conversations that we've had about what solidarity looks like and in the piece, thinking about radical collectivity and all of these other ways to frame what it is I mean by saying, showing up and showing out for one another. And in that, how we center, who we center, what we center is so important. And I think sisterhood in this context can fall really flat in action, And we can do a lot of things in theory. We can add a lot of language. We can get really bogged down in certain kinds of questions, which I don't think are unhelpful. But I think that showing up looks like something that we're still struggling to figure out. So showing up in this moment, to me, means thinking about the vulnerabilities of everybody. Who gets to show up? Who even gets to be present in a room? What are the rooms that we are crafting and shaping so that people feel a part of this struggle, that they feel visible in this struggle and invisibilized. And and invisibilized is something we have to be really concerned about. Are there people wanting to operate on lower frequencies and not be visible in particular ways? But when people are asking to be seen, to be heard, to be felt, that we are showing up in ways that allow for that to really transpire. And after the Women's March that happened in January, after some of these more visible political moments like the Women's Strike Day, I've really had to sit with and think through what is my own practice of sisterhood? What is my own practice of showing up? Which does include self-care, which does include making certain choices about when and how I can show up and what that means. But it always means that I'm thinking about How will this impact the most vulnerable people in our community? If we operate from the position that there's this scarcity of resources or scarcity of rights that is available, then we're going to be in competition with each other instead of in community and collectivity with one another. If we think we can only do one thing or only fight one battle at a time, we end up losing the war. There are many lanes and opportunities for us to be operating in to seek freedom dreams, to seek justice. And I think sisterhood, collectivity, collaboration, community, all of this means that we're finding our ways through this, learning and unlearning during that process, and understanding that together we get more done, but that togetherness requires us to do a lot of self-reflection and a lot of self-work to make sure that we're showing up in just in equitable ways. And that doesn't always happen. I think we're very concerned about showing up and being present, but are we putting our best present as individuals to make the collective work better? And then when these moments happen, when we fail, which we all do, and we don't do something right or we do harm to someone else, how do we acknowledge that what you did is trash but recognize that none of us are disposable in this moment? And I've been thinking about this. I don't believe any of us are disposable. Hence why I'm a present abolitionist. Hence why I'm someone who's committed to thinking through something beyond this kind of very dedicated kind of harm response. You go away. We throw you away. We discard you kind of positioning when people do harm. It doesn't mean we're not holding them accountable because love is an accountability practice. And it does mean that I prioritize the person who's been harmed and how I'm dealing with this. But it does mean that if we're saying no one is disposable, we're seeing even harm doers aren't disposable. And so that is the next level of how we get to think about what it means to actually build the kinds of communities we want to see and the kinds of sisterhood, brotherhood, siblinghood that we want to see operating in the world, particularly in our justice spaces.
0: Elhans, your thoughts?
1: I think in order
2: for solidarity and sisterhood and all of these loving ideas to actually take place, One of the things that's really, really important to do is for those who understand their own privilege and even for those who don't to challenge themselves around not taking the moral authority in relationships. You know, a lot of times in relationships we are seeing people dictate based on their experiences with community and with people, what the outcomes will be and what the narrative about people will be. And that's one of the the most important things is for people to resist anyone who shows up as being an authoritative figure because it kills any opportunity for all of us to actually be in space together and to be equal in those ways when we talk about equity and, you know, what's an equitable relationship. Part of what also has to happen is people have to actually reject the tokenism and commodifying of experiences that take place in communities. One of the things that I spend a lot of my time talking about is it's actually in communities where the most harm happens. If you look across any racial demographic or any of those specifics, you will see that violence typically happens across all sectors, you know, intercommunally. So one of the things that's important is to actually build intentional community, meaning that people are intentionally working to unlearn all of the things that society and these systems have taught us. One of the things about a black trans politic, which is the politic that I operate from, is actually uncovering and discovering what it means to love yourself. Uncovering and discovering what it means to actually have a vision that is beyond yourself and so you know the requirement is for society to stop requiring people who are marginalized stop requiring poor black trans women to be mules it is not our job to carry the emotional depth of the people that we come from from the people that we love the people that we give our lives to it's really really important that to establish solidarity or to establish any type of relationship, you actually have to think of me. You have to think of me in a way that you've never, ever considered. We are required to do more work in these times. And the most important thing about solidarity is we actually have to stop disposing of ourselves first. There's something that happens in order to kill someone. You must kill yourself first because you actually have no belief that you have any contributions unless it is killing someone or saying who's worthy. And so the ways that that shows up is that we teach ourselves that we are unworthy first. So in order to do solidarity work, in order to do true sister work, to do black feminism as many aspire... These are the things that are required and it's very clear that we are not there yet. We are not there and we just have much more work to do.
0: I think about how much when it comes to black women, disposability and being replaceable, I feel like it's stitched into our emotional DNA as girls how much more everybody within your community is worth in comparison to you. And I think about how that shapes how we think about ourselves. And so your point, Earl, about uncovering and learning what it means to actually love yourself, I think is a particular emotional labor within communities where on the one hand, the emotional labor of black women is literally life saving, upholds communities and families and keeps entire societies going on the one hand. And on the other hand, those same black girls and women are discarded in ways that are consistently heartbreaking. And devastating. And I think about what that creates in our spirits and in our souls. And so why it matters so much that the idea of being listened to, and not just listening, but being listened to, because I feel like black women are the particular group of people who are so often required to do the listening to all Other people in their community and outside of their community in terms of society, that's also historically who we have been. So that the idea of being listened to becomes not just incredibly important, but in a way that we take up space that is not ours to take and being corrected in those spaces is hard to hear because we bring this living, historical, emotional carriage with us. We walk with it. I think for some of us in our bodies are buried all kinds of wounds and the way those wounds manifest hurt and harm ourselves first and then others as well. So then the practice of sisterhood and solidarity, the the power and the beauty of that are the ways in which black women insist on joy and finding happiness in small moments and big moments and why that matters when the history looks the way the history looks on the one hand. On the other hand, I think about us being more careful with each other when we go wrong, when we do wrong, and when we do the craziest things, which we do and which we will do. And because black women are the ones who are so easily discarded, I think taking a particular care about what correction looks like and being reminded that this is not what allyship or sisterhood or solidarity looks like, but there is a way to be corrected, to correct yourself and to be self-reflective. I think about this idea of being self-reflective. How do you reflect if your frame is entrenched only in your wounds? how does self-reflection happen and so this kind of learning to listen within your own sisterhood community becomes really important as a way to move outside wounds of your own trauma and also sometimes to not only come from a lens and a place of trauma as we seek to build a sisterhood and a future that is about far more joy and growth and peace and the ability to imagine all kinds of futures and worlds for ourselves and so I think about all of those things even with this moment with Chimamanda and examining my own instinct to be protective of her as I watched her being publicly discarded and then examining what does that mean within my own spirit what am I actually dealing with within myself with that instinct to protect and so I think about all of those things when we do what I call when I do the, the unlearning work of what we think sisterhood is and reimagining what solidarity feels like. So there is value and care. I want to have closing thoughts from you both. First, you, Dr. Trufa B. Lindsay, and our closing word on the show will come from Elle Hearns. Trufa B. Lindsay.
1: Unlearning how do we operate from these spaces of hurt and pain? And there's so much. And I think about this from the position of what tools do we have to care for one another and care for ourselves. I've thought about this often when people have been like, are you doing self-care? And I'm like, I can barely roll over, let alone show up and then provide myself with self-care. And then self-care has also become this somewhat kind of neoliberal capitalist dependent project where the self-care becomes something that money has to do or there's access to certain things to be able to do. But I wonder if, as we think about right now, there's this caring and giving circle to our elder, Barbara Smith, who at this point needs to be able to retire and to be able to be and live her life in a particular kind of way. And so people are getting funds, getting donations to really be able to support that, that she's able to even be cared for and to self-care. And I think in our movements, what that's going to mean for us is us putting on the line what it means to be cared for. And each of us, I think, has to articulate that in very distinct ways about what it means to show up for me, what it means to care for me, what it means to care for myself. I think this is far more diverse in orientation than we often give credit for. And that also accounts for the different kinds of trauma and pain that we're coming to the table with. We're all coming to, and, and I don't mean this as a sweeping all, but I think so many of us, I guess I should say, are coming to the table with so much of this hurt, of this pain, of the bruises of white supremacy, of transphobia, of homophobia, of sexism, of misogyny, of sexual violence, of gender violence. There's so much that's coming to these tables. And then we're asked to do work that is oriented from a place of love, when some of us have not experienced love in these profound life-affirming ways. And so I think that the practice of doing love, of learning love, and unlearning these harmful things that we've even maybe mistaken for love is a part of our justice work as well. I think, holding ourselves accountable to showing up as broken as we are, but in acknowledging that and moving in that and saying, what are the communities we can build around this to provide support for us to move from point A to point B? I think that's so important to understand and recognize. I see so much hurt when I come into these justice spaces often that doesn't get to be dealt with because we minimize it as a thing in this grand scheme of what we're fighting for. But my freedom dream has a healthy and vibrant and loving and ecstatic and living full lives and complex lives, which means we're going to be sad sometimes, we're going to be angry. This doesn't free us from hurt. But it does say that the harm that's been caused by these systems and in our interpersonal relationships matter as we move forward to the place of living, surviving, and thriving in this world.
0: Final word to you, Hans.
1: Love exists, and it's something that I truly believe deeply
2: that it's possible for us to have love. It's possible for us to have love outside of the ways that we've been taught love shows up. For most of us who are coming into not only work, but just the world with so much trauma and pain, a lot of our trauma and pain is because we've actually taken the chance on love. And so we've loved people even after they've hurt us. We've loved people even after they've discarded us. We've loved people who haven't considered us. And so that's really what self-reflection requires in order for us to achieve these grander freedom dreams. It requires us to be self-reflective. And the way that we do that is by examining our results. We have to examine what our results have been. What have the results been in our work? What have the results been in our relationships? And what has the results been in ourselves? And if you are constantly losing people or you're blocking people on Facebook or whatever the case may be, then you probably have not had results that were warranted or that you wanted to achieve. And so it's really important to understand what it is that you envision in not only this moment but beyond this moment. Because if you don't examine your results, you will kill me first. And then you'll kill yourself because you'll live in shame. So it's really, really important for us to lead from a place of imagining love outside of our trauma, but also imagining ourselves outside of those forces, outside of those systems. And in particular, it's really, really important for people to find some support, find community that listens to you, that loves you, considers you, and also challenges you to your faith, it's really, really important to invest into that type of structure because I truly believe that we're in a time where we are really creating something that doesn't exist because we know what the outcomes have been of what we've existed in. So it's really, really that for me, that that love exists. And part of that love for me is really investing my time and my love into continuing to organize, but also making sure that there are infrastructures and support systems for black trans women at the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. It's been the greatest, greatest gift that my experiences and results could have warranted to me. And and that's what we are being forced to do. We are being forced to continue to create and invest in things that not only support us, but support the communities in which we we love. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity to do that and to be in sisterhood with true sisters who love me back
0: ultimately sisters have been doing this emotional labor for themselves and in a way black women have always done this for themselves with each other let's just ask annie and aretha your hour thank you to L Hearns and Dr Trevor B Lindsay thank you my sisters
3: thank you thank you thank you hear myself
0: Thank you to the Spin production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is Reimagining Resistance, Sisterhood, and Solidarity on The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global, groundbreaking, and sexy. I'm your host, your global Ghanaian Esther Arma.
2: Just copy properly, no, everybody's no, so no, policy. No, universal no, equality, no, responsibility, no, policy no, to survive economically. No, Some people do it comically, of no, freedom, no, equality, no, invest no, your money properly, no, people owe me your.
3: This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio
1: Satellite System.